Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. We are glad to be back. We sure are. Well, you know, folks, if you know anything about us here on the Good Judgment Podcast, you know that we love football. And we hate math. Okay, yeah, that's right. The two universal truths about us here on the podcast are that we love football, we don't do math. So, since this episode is being recorded during football season, we thought we'd start this episode off with a famous football story. And also that we would not do any math? Yeah, that's right, Wade. Uh, We're going to start with a good football story and no math. Yay. I know, yay, right? Two things we love. So... The story is this. Vince Lombardi, of course, was a famous professional football coach, one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest. And the story goes that every season on the first day back to practice with these professional athletes, all of whom had played in high school and college and all of that, Lombardi would walk into the training room where all of them were seated. He would hold up a football and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. And then from there, he would kind of explain the game, the rules, the ideas, the basic policies, but he would always start back at the beginning. And that, and I know some of you, you're saying, why is this relevant on a series on evidence? And, and you're asking that. Well, but it's because today we're going to discuss something so fundamental that you will all undoubtedly say, come on, guys, we already know that. And that's just great. If you do know it and you really, really know it, then this little refresher will be nothing but just a refresher. That's right. But the problem is that sometimes something is just so fundamental that we take it for granted that we know it. And maybe we really don't. So our episode today is entitled, Gentlemen and Ladies, This is Hearsay. So folks, hearsay you know, there, there's a lot of reasons why hearsay is what it is. And, and if you start with where do you find the rules on hearsay, 24-8-801 through 826 is, is where you start. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. That's exactly right. So that's right. And and really the basis for where you start um, is – Oddly enough, in 24802, the second statute in that series, and it, it, it goes a little bit like this. It says, hearsay shall not be admissible except as provided by this article, provided, however, that, and this is really important, if a party does not properly object to hearsay, the objection shall be deemed waived waived and the hearsay evidence shall be legal evidence and admissible. So as we go through today, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a series of questions as to how to analyze a hearsay issue when it comes up. And hopefully eventually this little routine will blow itself really fast through your brain every time a hearsay objection is made. But the first question is, is there an objection? Because you might not, you're not out looking for it. You're not out like a bird dog seeking it out, pointing at it, say, oh, 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 I think that was hearsay. If the parties have made some sort of either strategic decision or some other decision not to object, roll on. You've got plenty to do that's on your plate. 
And, and and parties do that all the time, you know, things that are secondary, that are that are of no consequence. You know, they let hearsay in all the time. I mean, in fact, the most annoying attorney ever in a case is the one that objects to every little bit of hearsay that might be offered by the other side, whether it matters or not. So. So what's know. the second question, Tane? So is there an objection? So let's say that, yes. Here, here, what's the next question? So if there's an objection, the next question you move on to is, is it hearsay? So let's and, def- and how do we and how do we know that way? We're, we're about to say we're both jumping on it at the same time. Hearsay is defined, and it's a statement other than one being made at, by the declarant while testifying at the trial or hearing. In other words, an out of court statement, and we're going to call it an out of court statement throughout this whole series. Offered in evidence to prove the truth of the matter asserted. So, Tane, break it down. What are the elements of of that definition? So you get get rid of all the ors and ands and these and those. Yeah, the the statutory definition uh, contains essentially four elements. Number one, it's a statement, and we'll talk about what that is in a minute. It's made outside of court, so it's not being made there in the courtroom while you're having the hearing or trial. It is offered in evidence. Okay, so I mean, it, it has to actually be offered for some reason to be accepted and heard by either you as the fact finder or by the jury. And then it has to be offered for the purpose of proving the truth of the matter asserted in that statement. And we'll explain what that means in a minute. So here we are starting in the beginning. Remember, this is a football. We've got you the definition. We've broken down the definition. Now we're going to further break down the definition by telling you what is a statement. And it may seem obvious. I think most people, at least in law school, envision a verbal or oral statement. That's not necessarily all that it is. A statement can be oral or written. And then importantly, third, it could even be the nonverbal conduct of a person if that conduct is intended to be an assertion. Give everybody an example of like a nonverbal act or a nonverbal statement, Tane. Oh, I'm sorry. I was doing it visually, Wade. I, <laughs> shoulder shrug, uh, you know, uh, throwing up your hands like, I don't know, or uh, a nod or a shake of the head or, you know, even giving the finger to someone completely nonverbal, but certainly meant to convey a statement. So there's a couple of other terms that we've got to get straight whenever we talk about hearsay. And I'm going to be real honest with y'all in law school. There would be times that I would be, what is a declarant again? And 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 what is the statement? I mean, you, you can get lost in this stuff. So let's make sure we're clear on the words before we go on. A declarant is the person who made the out-of-court statement. That is the the declarant. Not necessarily the witness, probably not the witness, frankly, but it's the person who made the out-of-court statement. That's right. And just just to refer back, all of these definitions are actually codified. They're in OCGA section 24-8-801. So an important point here to start off with is a lot of times you're going to get a, a uh, an objection to hearsay. I'm sorry, a, a response to an objection for hearsay. Somebody objects and the other side will say, well, your honor, The declarant is here to testify. Now, they're seeking to enter the hearsay statement before the declarant has testified or before the declarant's ever been on the stand or anything. And they'll say, well, all all of this comes in because he's here to testify. But that's not always correct. Right, Wayne? No, no, no. You know, just because you call an elephant a snake doesn't make it a snake, even if you do it a lot. It's it's still not a snake. 
So I get them confused. It's the trunk or something. Yeah, I don't something. Know. It's just weird, but yeah. All right. So now we're on our third question of this mantra. We're hoping you're going to ask yourself: one, is there objection? Two, is it hearsay? Finally, three, are we sure it's hearsay? So yeah, Tane, the, there are things that are absolutely out of court statements offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted that are not hearsay. Tell the folks about how that could possibly be. Yeah. So, so first, and, and this is why this third question comes where it does in your analysis. There are things that, that the statute calls exclusions. In other words, it may seem to fit in the definition, but it's still not hearsay. And those are, those are all set out in OCGA section 24-8-801D. Reading and, law during a podcast is not awesome. Yeah, so we're going to get really not awesome today because <laughs> um, we're going to read you several of, of these law. statutes. Yeah, but then we're going to try to explain them, and that's the real sure. purpose for it. So so one of the first exclusions, so, so understand, these are things that are just not hearsay. So they're not exceptions, which we'll get to in a minute. These are things that the statute actually says, this may sound like hearsay, but it ain't hearsay. Okay. Um, the first one of those is a prior statement by a witness. Now, tell them what we mean by that, Wade. All right. So the the person is on the stand in this hearing, and they previously made a statement. Remember, just because you call an elephant a snake, right. the fact that you said it before doesn't make it any more reliable than if you said it here in the hearing under oath. Yeah. Unless you, so you can't just bolster yourself. You can't just say, see, a, an elephant is a snake. And I've said it 10 times that it's a snake. I told my mama and I told my neighbor. And last week I told the policeman, no, that's not what you can do. You testify. And if the statement qualifies as a prior consistent or inconsistent statement, and that's a whole nother set of rules, probably a whole nother uh, podcast episode. Yeah. If there is a prior consistent or inconsistent statement, it's not hearsay, but you can't just bolster yourself or bolster your witness. Right. It has to fit within the definitions of, of either a prior consistent statement or a prior inconsistent statement as admitted under the rules before you can get those in. But understand, again, it's it's a weird thing, but it's it's still not hearsay. OK, it's it's something else. It's 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 a snake. It's not an elephant. So uh, as Wade was saying now. If the and this is a, a just a nuance to this. So if a statement is admitted, okay, in trial, and the declarant does not testify at trial, okay, so maybe it's a statement that was admitted of a defendant in a case, but he decides not to testify, okay. So there were reasons to admit it uh, early on in the case, but he doesn't testify at, at the trial. Um, then the rule says other out-of-court statements that that same declarant has made shall be admissible, not as substantive, substantive evidence, but for a couple of other reasons. Wade, what are those? Impeaching or rehabilitating a witness. So in other words, if it is admissible, if, if, if a statement is being admitted and the person, the declarant, remember declarant, does not testify, you can impeach somebody with that prior statement of the declarant, you can rehabilitate a witness who has been impeached by the prior statement of a declarant. But Tane, tell everybody kind of the, the, the sort of catch to this. 
Well, it's the circle back, just like the like the previous admission of statements that that aren't hearsay. It's still got to meet the requirements that it's either a prior consistent or inconsistent statement. In other words, you've got to meet certain criteria early on um, for each of these kinds of out of court statements to be admitted, um, particularly where uh, the declarant doesn't testify or hasn't testified. If you want to use it to to impeach or to rehabilitate or for the other purposes that we talked about a minute ago. And the one other place where a prior statement of a witness is just simply not hearsay, it's excluded from the rule, is when there has been a prior uh, identification of a party. Because otherwise, if you think about it, defense counsel could keep out the photo lineup and the ID from the photo lineup because it would be an out-of-court statement. It wouldn't be consistent or inconsistent with this one if they don't attack the credibility. You can never get in the fact that they saw six pictures and that he picked number three and this guy's number three and all that. So Yeah, it, or, even it, at, or even at the scene of the crime. Yeah. They, they there said, you go. That's the guy right over there. I saw shoot this guy. Yeah, you couldn't get that in because it, be, it would be an out-of-court statement that wouldn't be admissible because it's not a prior inconsistent or prior consistent statement. All right. So again, we're on exclusions to hearsay. Otherwise, it looks like hearsay, but it's not, you know, it, it looks like a duck, but it's just not a duck. First is a prior statement. Second is admissions of a party opponent. Now, remember, the whole reason hearsay is not admissible, and this is important. The reason hearsay is not admissible because it can't be cross-examined. That's the whole point of this. We have put a great deal of faith in cross-examination in our system, and you can't cross-examine someone who's not here, hence the hearsay rule. Now, you're going to hear us talk about all kind of policy decisions where we as a society, I guess, have decided that we're going to let some of this in because it, it has indicia of, of reliability. That's, yeah, all. That's, going to be an that's going to be an important phrase, indicia of reliability. The case law is replete with references to that um, for things that we're going to allow to come into evidence, even though it might look like, smell like, and, and act like hearsay. But you can't cross-examine yourself. So therefore, if it's the opposite party's prior statement, they can't complain they can't cross-examine it because they got the party. They got the declarant sitting over here, either <laughs> right. declarant or the agent, so or an agent of the declarant. So if you have a prior statement that is by the other party, obviously you can't just get in how many times your client is called a snake or a uh, 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 elephant or whatever. You can, the other party's own statement, statement that they've adopted or manifest a belief in, a statement made by an agent authorized to make a statement, a statement made by an agent authorized during the scope of that agency, or it could be an employee, I guess. And then one that we deal with exclusive, well, almost exclusively in criminal law, a co-conspirator statement. Basically, we're going to make your co-conspirator your agent. And remember, you don't have to allege conspiracy. You just got to prove, you got to set it up that there was one. Right, Tane? That's right. That's right. And, and let me go back to one of these because it's a little bit confusing. The The second one is a statement where the party manifests an adoption of or a belief in its truth. So this is a party who has adopted a statement, maybe by somebody else, by manifesting that they believe it's true. And you can, you can foresee a circumstance where that would happen where, for example, police officer says, well, uh, you know, uh, 
John says that Bill is a drug dealer. And the party says, well, yeah, that's true. Okay. He didn't say John is a drug dealer. He just said, I believe I am, I am agreeing. I'm manifesting a belief in the truth of that statement. Somebody else said it, but the party said, yeah, I believe that's true. In that circumstance, that might be admissible as, as a party's prior statement. So if none of these situations apply, that is, if it's not a prior statement that qualifies as a prior consistent or inconsistent statement, if it's not a identification, if it's not an admission by a party opponent with all those caveats, it's probably going to be a football. In other words, it's going to be hearsay. Right. It, it meets all the definitions, all the, the requirements to be called hearsay. So first, before we go to the, the, the next step in this process, um, let's do a couple of examples of how some of these come up in your courtroom, okay? Okay. So counsel asks, well, then what happened, witness? And the witness says, he said, your husband is an idiot. Objection, hearsay. And your honor, uh, we're not seeking to enter this statement for the truth of the matter asserted. That is um, that he really is an idiot. Rather, we're seeking to establish prior animosity between the parties. And, the judge. and the, the judge likely would come in and say, overruled, you can proceed. They do it in that kind of Are voice, too. Yeah, it's, it's always in that kind of smarmy voice like that. Um, <laughs> the next example, counsel says, well, what happened then? The witness says, well, he's talking about the defendant, told me that he shot John, the victim. Opposing counsel, objection, hearsay. The response ought to be admission of a party opponent, Your Honor. And the court says, overruled, continue. Sometimes, even where the statement is hearsay, and there is an objection, and there is no exclusion, the statement may still come in, right, Tane? Because it's different between an exclusion and another E word that has an X that follows it. Exception. That's right, Wade. There are a number of exceptions to the hearsay rule. And, you know... I've had occasion to to get to talk to young lawyers and talk to them about litigation and talk to them about how they might be better litigators. And the first thing that I tell them, and I believe this to be true, if you can master the hearsay rule, in other words, the definition and the uh, the exclusions and the hearsay exceptions, which we're about to talk about and go over you will probably be able to best your opponent in almost every court proceeding because so many lawyers think that they know what the hearsay rules and exceptions are, but when it comes right down to it, um, they really don't. Now, we're not going to go over all of the exceptions, but what you're going to hear a lot of times in a courtroom is going to be something that sounds like this. You're on our object. That's hearsay. The court. Counsel? Is there an exception to the hearsay rule that would apply here? Um, um, I mean, um, um, judge, we'll just withdraw that and move on. <laughs> that is so frequently what I hear in my courtroom because, especially on their feet, a lot of people can't recall what the exceptions to the hearsay rule are, uh, even though they're there. And, and I got to tell you, as a judge, I don't think you ought to supply the exceptions to the hearsay rule for counsel. I just think you ought to ask the question. 
do you care, Tane, as a judge, if people cite the right rule number or judge, I think it's exception or prior inconsistent something? Uh, you know, at what point do you make them get close to what they really need to be saying? How much do you care about the number? Uh, no, I don't care about the number at all. You know, in a lot of circumstances, uh, you know, people say, oh, you should be making objections in federal court based on the, the you know, federal rule number. I don't want people to do that. I want, I want them to demonstrate a knowledge of the law. I don't care if they know the numbers. I don't always remember the numbers uh, on my feet if it's, you know, 823 or 826 or whatever it might be. And as we go through them, you'll understand why. But um, I, I want people to tell me, what exception may apply. And, and that's really a demonstration of whether they really do know the rule or not. Now, folks, we are going to talk about hearsay exhaustively in this evidence series. But one of the things that we want you to get, and if you don't get anything else, I think this would be valuable. If the evidence is not offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted, it's not hearsay. You never reach the exception. Unfortunately, True. So many of us hear something that sounds like an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter, they, an out-of-court statement. Let me stop there. And we say, oh, it's hearsay. No, 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 Hang on. That, that offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted is important because you never reach exceptions. If it's not hearsay, there's nothing to be accepted from, okay? So just when you hear us say the hearsay rule, that's the rule that generally says hearsay is not admissible. Actually, that's in the law. And then if it's not hearsay, there's no reason to get to the exceptions. So just don't ever forget that as you go through this. If it's not offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted, if it's a prior, if a statement of a prior uh, of a party opponent, if it's a prior consistent or inconsistent statement made to impeach or rehabilitate, don't get here. But right. if you got to get it, here, now we're going to go through some of the biggies. Well, and and I'll and I'll add one thing to that too, Wade. Again, as the judge. Don't be afraid to ask the next question. So sometimes you, a, a party will say, objection hearsay. The opposing party will say, not offered for the truth of the matter asserted, Your Honor. And you may scratch your head on it for a second. Don't be afraid to say, how so, counsel? How, how, how is it not offered for the truth of the matter asserted? Because it may not be readily apparent for, to you, A, why they're offering the, the evidence, or B, how it could be interpreted in such a way that it's not offered for the truth of the matter asserted. And that's important because it absolutely affects how you should rule on their hearsay objections. So ask those questions. You know, before we get on with, uh, with, with, with our discussion of exceptions, just so that you understand, let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, a tenant in a landlord-tenant relationship sent a letter to the landlord that said, we're not going to pay the rent. This place is terrible. And this is your notice that you've got to fix the hot water heater. Now, is it offered to prove the place is actually terrible? Of course not. And that's, that's not even really relevant. What's relevant is notice. So it's offered to prove notice. It, the letter might be offered to prove the date of the notice, because maybe that's on the, the letter that it that was within 30 days or before 45 days or whatever the, the relevant statute may be. But see, that's an out-of-court statement. But it's not offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. It's offered to prove that it was sent on a date certain. So that's just a quick example. Folks, we need to pause now for an important announcement. Folks, this is Wade and Tane, and you're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web. 
As always, you can find our outlines for these podcasts as well as supplemental materials on our website at goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcasts at our email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com, and we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. And tell all your friends. Thanks, and now back to our studios. Let's get back to exceptions. We've now decided, Tane, this evidence is hearsay, by golly. Okay. Now what we going to do? <laughs> well, so let's think about this before we get into the to this rule. Why are these things that we're about to talk about exceptions? And there's a really good reason for them, either as a policy matter or just as a general rule. We believe that going back to what we talked about a minute ago, these have some sort of indicia of reliability. Either the way the statement is created or the circumstance under which it comes about indicates that it might be more reliable than something that you just made up. And you'll see as we go along why that might be with a lot of these rules. So these start at OCGA section 24-8-803. And these first ones that we are going to talk to you about, it's really important for you to understand don't matter whatsoever whether the declarant is available to testify and be cross-examined or not. So that's a really important point because uh, it's not an objection to these uh, exceptions to the hearsay rule, whether the declarant is or is not in the courthouse and available to be um, to be cross-examined. So Wade, what's the first one? 803.1 is present sense impression. Basically, this is supposed to be the play-by-play of what you are seeing. You hear this a lot when we have 911 calls or people who were were describing what they were what they were seeing. It, it is meant to be the eyewitness provision, basically. Yeah, timing and, is, and it timing's is timing's important on this. That's very that's exactly right, Wade. So you're looking for something that was happening essentially as events were unfolding or very soon in time thereafter, and not to get uh, not to get the it confused with one that's going to come up in a minute. But but what the person is basically saying is, you know, hello, 911. What's your you know, what's your problem? What's your issue? And and they say, oh, my God, I just saw somebody running down the street covered in blood. Uh, It was a woman. And I I think she had a a white shirt on, but it was it was all red because it was all bloody. Okay, that's a present sense impression. That is, you know, that is what you saw just now in the in the heat of the moment immediately. So the second one and, and to be honest with you, a couple of these first ones are related and time is important. Some more important than other. Present sense impression, real important. Time is. The next mm-hmm. one's excited utterance. This is 8032. Mm-hmm. And a statement made relating to a startling event or condition, and this is important, made while the declarant was under the stress or excitement caused by that event or condition. Now, you would say to yourself, Eek, I just got shot. But that some of the case law has let this expand just a little bit to where if you couldn't get to the 911 call for 28 minutes after the shooting, that may still come in as a and as, and as an excited utterance. But you'll see present sense impression, excited utterance get twisted up a lot. People flip it a lot, and and they're very close, frankly. 
But one is supposed to be in the description of as it's happening, excited utterances while you're still under the excitement of the startling condition. Yeah. And, and for example, and again, remembering that the availability of the, of the declarant is immaterial in this circumstance, there might have been a person in the crowd who witnessed an automobile accident and Two minutes after the accident, a police officer comes up and somebody points at a guy running down the street and says, that's the guy who caused the accident, officer. Okay, it's right after the accident. Everybody has just seen what happened. You might find that that is an excited utterance. And that person may that person's identity may not even be known, but it might be Again, under the circumstances of the case, as presented with sufficient facts, you may decide that that is, in fact, an excited utterance that should come into evidence. And again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on the underlying facts of the case. But there are cases out there that you can find where an unknown person gave an excited utterance immediately after the occurrence of an event that was allowed to be admitted at trial. And you clearly can't cross-examine that. <laughs> yeah, if you don't know who it is, I mean, that, yeah. Number three, then existing mental, emotional, or physical condition. Now, in other words, this is a statement that is made about how that person is feeling, what their physical condition was. Frequently, this has to do with I am going to, I am not going to because this is my plan, this is my motive, how I feel, if I'm in pain. Not to be confused with statements for medical medical diagnosis or treatment, but this is sort of your subjective, the declarant's subjective feeling. Now, this has got to be relevant for something. You just can't go around talking about how everybody's feeling. But there, there, there might be a something about it that makes it relevant. And if, if, if that's relevant, then that can come in because basically we sort of assume as a society that people are not intentionally lying about how they feel in order to get over on somebody in litigation three years later. So, so let me give you an example that comes to mind and, and Wade, you can weigh in on whether this is, is valid or not. But for example, I can think of a situation where perhaps the defendant in a, in a, in an aggravated assault case said to someone, uh, you know, after the fact I was so mad at him that afternoon because of what he did. Okay, that's not really an admission against interest. I mean, he's not saying I, I beat him with a crowbar or anything like that. But what he is saying is at that moment in time, I was really angry. So you might find that that is uh, a, a then existing mental, emotional, or physical condition that was being described by the declarant at that moment in time. And it, and it, that is, this is not one that necessarily has to be tied to, uh, you know, the moment of the particular incident. I agree. Now this doesn't, this is not a clairvoyant statute either. You're not allowed to, to use this as I thought he was going to go for his gun. So I went for my gun. That doesn't, that doesn't work. You got to be talking about how you feel, not, is it reasonable, not what somebody else was doing, but it has to be talking about how you feel. Next is the statement made for the purposes of medical diagnosis or treatment. Now, I have I have recently had one of these cases, and it can be more than 
sort of a, a dying declaration where you didn't die. I mean, it can be basically we anything. To, we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, sorry. Basically, this is something where you're telling a some form of a medical provider that you, this is how I feel. This is what hurts. It started hurting on Thursday, whatever. This comes up, unfortunately, too often when you have EMTs getting the background story on what happened and why are you bleeding? Why were you, you know, you were stabbed and you'll have a victim or somebody testifying about the, the, the what happened. Yeah. The but manner forget, of the this, injury. Th this also goes to um, cases where you, you know, say it's a car wreck case, you know, and they go to the doctor's office because their neck is really hurting. And the doctor says, well, have you ever had anything like this before? And they say, well, yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I had a bad fall and, and I hurt my neck and it was really hurting for a couple of months after that. That may be part of their medical history that the doctor writes down as a part of their examination. And again, the indicia of reliability here is you don't have an incentive to lie to your doctor about your treatment, something that's going to affect you physically. And so those kinds of statements are an exception to hearsay because they have that indicia of reliability. Not to go too far off a field, but you know, um, there are some people who intentionally lie about their injury to get pain meds. I'm just throwing that out there. That's probably a more recent development in society. And I think originally we said, well, you don't go around getting improper medical care because that might kill you or whatnot. And then maybe, you know, maybe sometimes the logic behind these rules has changed, but that is the logic behind the rule. Number five, recorded recollection. We're going to have a whole long, dis well, relatively long discussion about this a late later. And I think we ought to kind of blow through this stop sign. But yeah. the recorded recollection is where you don't remember now and you remember and, and you made a note about it then. Okay. So yeah, I can tell you, I can tell you good examples of some of this. This happens all the time. Diaries, people who journal. I, I've never really understood that. You're one. not a journalist? Um, <laughs> like I don't, yeah, I, I don't have time to write my stuff down at the end of the day. I'm sorry. I'm just living my life. I'm sorry. But anyway, if you journal, I'm not judging you. Sorry. Uh, but but those kinds of things are a, you know, a, a, a more more, uh, you know, close in time record recordation of something that happened. And now you don't remember it as, as sharply as you did then. And then I'll tell you, Tate and I were talking the first six of these and we're about to hit number six. The first six exceptions are the ones that are probably the most frequently cited in court. So let's deal with six. And we have done an entire podcast episode with the friend of the podcast, Gary Mueller on this dun, issue, dun, dun. <laughs> on this issue of business records. This is yeah. where business records come in. And so Tane, in the interest of time, since we've done a whole episode on 8036, let's just tell everybody, Hey, go see the episode on 8036. It was early in our career. The recording quality <laughs> might not have been awesome, but it was good. The content was That's right. was primo. So and, and the only thing I'll, yeah, the only thing I'll point out to you about that is it's now called uh, records of regularly conducted activity because it doesn't just have to do with businesses. So that's why they kind of changed the nomenclature. All right, number seven is called the absence of entry in records kept in accordance with paragraph six of this code section. And we talk about that a little bit in the uh, business records exception, but it's basically when something is omitted that's regularly recorded um, and, and, and there's something 
you know, sought to be admitted to explain why that is, or, 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 or just the fact that it's omitted is also allowed to be put into evidence. Number eight, so public records or reports. And, and frankly, the one thing I would warn you about this is this really doesn't apply in criminal proceedings against the accused about matters observed by police officers or other law enforcement personnel in connection with an investigation. But in civil proceedings and against the state in criminal proceedings, factual findings resulting from an investigation may pursuant to authority granted by law unless the sources of information indicate a lack of trustworthiness. In other words, we're not going to let you get the police report in because it's a, quote, public record. You're going to have to bring live bodies and they're going to have to testify. That's what they're really trying to do here. And understand when this statute was created, that was the specific intention for putting this exception to the exception in there and saying, no, 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 it's way too easy if you just put the police report in and have the jury read the police report and then convict the defendant. You mean like everybody wants us to do when they are self-represented? That is exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. All right. All right. So what exceptions nine and 10, they go together. Yeah. The records of vital statistics, things like birth certificates, death, death certificates, marriage certificates, or the lack thereof, that's nine and 10. These, that's why you don't see these as often because some of these are sort of speak for themselves, I guess. That's right. Now, the next one I've always thought is kind of uh, kind of interesting, and it is records of religious organizations. Now, in a modern age, you might think, well, that's that's that seems weird. Why would we why would we do that? Well, you have to understand that there was a time not so long ago um, when religious organizations kept records of important things like births, marriages, christenings, um, you know, those sorts of things. And you say, well, why was that? Why would that be important? Well, you know, if you christened somebody when they were six weeks old and you're trying to establish what their age is because you don't have any other records, you you have a, you know, the religious organization had no reason to lie about when they christened the baby or when the baby might have been born in relation to the christening. And so those are records that could be relied upon. And, you know, quite frankly, this is a policy decision that most religious organizations don't have that incentive to make up records or keep inaccurate records of things that are, you know, important to them, important to the religious organizations. Similarly, number 12 is the marriage, baptismal, and other certificates. It's really the same thought process. Nobody has mm-hmm. any motive to lie that. And you may think to yourself, when is this going to become relevant? If you get involved in probate litigation, where we're talking oh, yeah. about, are you my son or are you not my son? Were you married to me? Were you married to her or whatever? All of this could become relevant, and otherwise it would be an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. So we have to build in some of that, bake that into the the cake, so to speak. The same with 13, which is family records. Kind of the same with 14, Tane, which are records affecting an interest in property or land. That would be sort of your deeds. Right. Same thing with 15. Or at least your bills of sale or, you know, whatever for, for pieces of land. 15 is sort of a statement contained in a bill of sale. You know, if there was some sort of exclusion or, or whether you'll notice you had a uh, easement on your property, all of that would be in there. 16 is statements in ancient documents. That means things that are 20 more years or old or older. I don't know why they become any more reliable after 20 years, but we just decided, <laughs> by golly, after 20 years, you've had enough time to argue about it, I guess. Well, the greatest generation were a lot more honest than we than we are. So, you know, we, we trust their documents. Yeah. 
17 market yeah. reports and commercial publications. You know, interestingly, I, I, Professor Millich spoke to us, Tane, this last summer and talked about the label on a can, whether or not you knew yeah. this was too lean or something. I don't know what it is. And he said that 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 you very well might be able to use that as a commercial publication. He thought maybe it'd be more appropriate a business record, but a bit, you know, I mean, that's something that you've got to think about. But sometimes you want to know what was the interest rate or, or what was the price of the stock on June third five years ago, and this would allow yeah. you to get some of that. Or maybe you know, maybe you you've now got some sort of. Uh, manufacturer's liability suit because a product contained aluminum and and you want to prove it had aluminum and you're like well look right here on the can one of the ingredients that the manufacturer printed on there was aluminum uh, you know we can admit that into evidence because it's right there on the on the product so now 18 is going to be something we're going to have a conversation probably when we're talking to experts that if there is a a reliable or learned treatise in a field Sometimes people talk about, I don't even know what, what level they're on with the, what is it? It's not DMSO. What is the, the, the DS, DSM four and five. Yeah. And all that six, that seven, eight, whatever. Psychological. Yeah. A lot of people rely on that sort of as the Bible in that field. And so we're not going to make you bring the guy who wrote it or the group of people who have contributed to it. We're going to allow that learned treatise, as long as it's really learned treatise to come in. Yeah, I used to do litigation years ago where uh, there was a thing called the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, and it was the the standard for everyone in the industry for setting up traffic lights and things like that. And it came in and in almost every case in some way, shape, or form as a learned treatise. 19 is the reputation concerning personal or family history, what people believe or what they were told. I know this is probably three levels of hearsay, but at some point, if this is relevant for some reason, Frequently, like I said, in probate litigation, then they're going to allow it in. Reputation concerning boundaries or general history. In other words, what everybody thought that was the Smith place up on the farm. That's, yeah, or we that, thought their property ended at the river or, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, yeah. And, and they you know, always farmed not, on the other side. Look, they, they always farmed on the other side of the mountain or, you know, all those kinds of things that us, us from, uh, from the, uh, the hinterlands understand. But now at some point it may not be persuasive. It's just not going to be a kept out because it's hearsay. Don't, don't get this confused with this is really awesome evidence. If what everybody well, thought was true, that may just be one fact that you consider as a part of what together with a deed and a survey and all of that. And you're actually raising a really important question here, Wade, and we're kind of in the middle of the exceptions, but I think it's important to point out when you're ruling on these questions of, of admissibility you're not saying whether it should or shouldn't be believed by the jury or by whoever else, uh, you know, the fact finder. You're, you're not making a value judgment there. You're just saying whether it comes in or whether it doesn't come in. And with, with, with an exception we'll talk about in just a minute, that's, that's the only time. I mean, you're really not making a, a value judgment on that. I think we left off on like 2021 is reputation as the character, and that doesn't come in unless it's somehow admissible, you know, under under the 400 rules. We'll talk about that as another, in another episode. Judgment right. of a previous conviction. We'll talk about how you authenticate that and how that would come in if, if you were impeaching with a prior conviction. And then finally, judgment as to a personal family or general history or boundaries, if there was some sort of judgment about that. 
that thing that we were going to allow the reputation in, if, if, if some court had decided that, that's probably even more reliable. So those are the 23 exceptions that it really doesn't matter if the declarant is available or not. Tane, the next question in our, uh, I guess, our process is, is the declarant really unavailable? Because now we're going to go to a different rule, right? That's right. So the in 24-8-804, all of the exceptions that we're talking about in this part, the declarant must be unavailable to testify. And you'll see why in the examples that we're going to give in a minute. But but the, the place to start on this is in section A, which talks about what the term unavailable as a witness actually means. So is that person exempted from testifying because of privilege? Is that person refusing to testify despite a court order? Does that person not remember the thing we're talking about or that he or she is being asked about on the stand? Is that person unable to be present because of death or some sort of mental illness or infirmity? Or, and then finally, this is number five, so this would be 24-8-804-A-5. Is that person absent from the hearing and the proponent of the statement has been unable to procure that person's attendance by some sort of subpoena, et cetera, other reasonable means? Not that they just ask and he didn't want to show, but they've done something to try to have legal process issued and, and for some reason it didn't get issued or it didn't get served. That's right. So, so showing that the declarant is unavailable by one of the because of one of those circumstances is important to everything that's going to come after here. So it has to fit in one of those categories, with one exception. If the declarant is if the declarant is unavailable as a witness because the other party procured them to be unavailable. In other words, they bribed them, they threatened them, they drove them out of the county and and left them on the side of the road, uh, you know, whatever they may have done. And and I've actually had this in a case Mm -hmm. where uh, somebody wouldn't come as a witness from Michigan to, I'm sorry, from Ohio to testify because they had been both threatened and then bribed. Uh, not to come. And if you're the party who doesn't want them to testify and you're able to get them unavailable because you've done one of those uh, bad acts, we're not going to sanction that. If, if that gets proven, if, if there's enough evidence to show that you're probably at fault uh, with respect to why they're not there, then, um, th- then their unavailability essentially doesn't count against the party that wants to enter the statement. So we have decided that they meet this criteria of unavailability. So now we turn to subsection B. So the following are not excluded by the hearsay rule if the declarant is really unavailable as a witness. And Tane, um, some of these are sort of speak for themselves. And I know everybody's getting excited about that dying declaration. We're, we're gaining on the dying <laughs> declaration. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. I promise. So tell the folks what we have here if they're, un- if they're truly unavailable as we've defined. Sure. So, and this one does come up with some frequency testimony given as a witness in another hearing, but okay. So, so first of all, you've got testimony, you've got somebody who's under oath, they've already sworn, they've come to testify in another hearing, but just because they testified under oath in another hearing doesn't mean it's automatically admissible. It's got some indicia of reliability, but you have to understand the other party still hasn't had an opportunity to cross-examine them, but 
if the other party has had an opportunity or someone who was essentially in the shoes of the opposing party had an opportunity to cross-examine that person or at least put the evidence that they have to, to the test, um, then that may be admissible in the case uh, if the person is unavailable to testify. So think about this. Comes up a lot in things like a probable cause hearing. Somebody has testified there, but they're suddenly unavailable. We've got this testimony that they gave at another proceeding that's essentially related to what we're talking about. They're now unavailable. Maybe they died since the PC hearing. But the defendant's counsel was right there and had an opportunity to cross-examine them at the PC hearing. That transcript of that hearing might be available or might be admissible because the party is unavailable to give that testimony at trial. Remember, if you get into that whole the predecessor who was cross-examining, who had a similar interest, remember that's only in civil hearings. Okay. Right. Hey Tang, mm-hmm. can we talk about it now? You want to do the the dying declaration, don't you? Yeah, because it's so awesome. It's the it's the the right you know the the awesome movie scene where the person's clutching their chest and say he got me, John finally got me, and they you know <clears throat> and then they die. Where he says, Rosebud. Exactly. Rosebud. That's the greatest movie of all time. But go ahead. Go ahead. So in a prosecution for homicide or in a civil proceeding, remember, not aggravated assault, not bank robbery. In a uh, prosecution for homicide or in a civil case, a statement made by the declarant while believing that he or sh- his or her death was imminent mm-hmm. concerning why they're getting dead then that can come in. But that is a very limited circumstance. How many times have you had that in your career, Tang? Um, Never. I had one. Go ahead. Well, but let me say, yeah, let me say, say one thing about this. This makes a lot of sense. So we're going to let that in, in, in civil cases um, because, because they're civil cases, (laughs) but in a criminal case, think about the reason that we're actually allowing that only in homicide cases. In a homicide case, the allegation is that the defendant is the one that made them get dead. In other words, the reason, going back to the rule we just talked about, the reason they're unavailable is because the defendant killed them or, or allegedly killed them. So we're going to let that come in in homicide cases so that if the person got shot, the policeman arrived and the person said, it was Billy Smith who shot me. And then he dies. They're going to let that in to show that Billy Smith might have actually been the person who killed him. It kind of makes sense. It does. And so without carrying on about this, because it's already getting to be a, a little bit of a long episode, we, we just want to we want to keep moving. But, you know, in law school, we spend all this time on it doesn't matter if they actually de- died, if they thought they were dying. That's enough. And, you all know, it just happens so rarely that it just is. It's it's really fun it's, and fascinating, but it's, it's so just fun. It's just it's a Hollywood thing. It's it is a hundred percent. Number yeah. three on the unavailability chart is a statement against interest. If a person with a reason, a reasonable person in the declarant's position would have understood that that must be true, because when it was made, it's clearly contrary to your interest, either proprietary or pecuniary, and. It's it's just something we're not going to let you stand on the side of the street corner and deny it, come into court and admit it. 
you got to make a choice. You got to ride one horse or the other. Yeah. And, and this comes up a lot in both criminal and civil cases. I mean, people, people tend to say things a lot of times that aren't in their best interest and, and the idea for letting it in, whether, you know, whether they're available to talk about it or not is um, that people don't normally go around saying untrue things that are against their interest. Now they do from time to time, but the idea is, well, that's got some indicia of reliability because it's, it's not really in their best interest to say it. If it's, you know, if it, if it's not true. And now we're going to get into sort of a, a quick chain. Um, well, let me say one other okay. thing about, about admission, um, admissions against interest. They need to be supported by corroborating circumstance that clearly indicate trustworthiness of the statement. So after we leave those, frankly, I don't know that I've heard much of the rest of this. Uh, a statement concerning declarant's own birth, adoption, divorce, legitimation, relationship by blood, marriage, etc. That can come in if that person is not available. If that person believed that they were um, stepbrothers with the guy who's now contesting the will. I mean, he's not here, so he had to be unavailable. If there's some, you know... A Christmas card or something. Hey, brother, you know, whatever you can get that in again. I don't know that it's going to win the day, but you can get it in. And then five is a statement offered that has engaged or acquiesced in wrongdoing that was intended to did or somehow made the declarant unavailable. In other words, the evidence that how you might have been liable, I guess, for that person's non-availability. Um, yeah. And that kind of goes back to the one we talked about a minute ago where, you can have hearsay evidence to show why that witness is unavailable. I mean, it, it, it makes sense. They're not there. You got to be able to set up the circumstances so you can actually give the underlying circumstance by hearsay. All right. So Tane, um, 805 is the hearsay within hearsay. What a lot of people call double hearsay. Sometimes we get in triple and quadruple hearsay where somebody said, somebody said, every said is a, is a hearsay potentiality, Right. Sure. The dispatcher said, the caller said that his neighbor said that John, uh, you know, shot him or whatever. That the more you, every time you hear said, you need to think, is that hearsay? Mm -hmm. And and each it's going to lead you well. Yeah. Eight oh six. Um, when a when the hearsay statement is admitted, the declarant, even though he or she may or not be there, may be attacked. And supported by that sort of evidence of, oh, he's always a liar and everybody in town knows he's a liar. Or he's never lied. He was a choir boy. Um, you can you can get that in. But that doesn't, and to be frank with you, that just doesn't come in very much. Well, folks, those are the hearsay rules, exceptions, and depending on whether they're available or unavailable. And we've got some more to talk about hearsay. But we wanted to make sure that we spend some, the, the adequate amount of time and we don't see you nodding off behind the wheel. Right, Tang? Yeah, we, we really hate it when that we lose a listener that way. So, folks, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to stop here. And we're going to ask you to tune in to the next episode of the Good Judgment Podcast, which will pick up where we left off on hearsay. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, 
who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this session? (laughs) Yes, Wade. Yes, I do have some thoughts. Remember that a stitch in time saves nine. And if you know what that means, please contact us at goodjudgepod.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.